It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Edith Wharton once said, there are two ways of spreading light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Jonathan was not able to join us today as he had a last-minute emergency. So this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. We may not have Jonathan, but what we do have today is our special guest and Christian friend and brother, David Stein. David, what's our topic for today's episode? Our topic for today, Rick, is are we living in the end times? And our scripture text for our topic is Daniel 12, verse 1, and it reads, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Are we living in the end times? Coming up in today's podcast, the Bible talks about a time of trouble never before seen. Is it possible we are in or near that period of time in spite of the unprecedented technology and freedom? Find out in about 15 minutes. Are there specific signs of the times in our world that tell us we are in the end times? Yes, there are. Are they obvious enough for those without faith to undeniably recognize And again, yes, they are. We're going to talk about them in about 30 minutes. Because everyone always seems to see doom and gloom regarding the end times, is it possible there can be world-changing blessings happening as well? Once again, the answer is yes, and we're going to get specific in about 45 minutes. But first, let's establish some context and figure out what's happening with the time of the end. People believe in the Bible to varying degrees. Some of us see it as the unerring word of God, while others see it as an account of history, wisdom, and standards. Still, others see it as sprinkled with both wisdom and folly, and then we have those who see no value in it at all. For the most part, one of the common threads that all who know something about the Bible seem to share is the belief that it speaks of God's wrath and apocalyptic events. While these are true perceptions of the Bible, they are by no means a complete picture. How can we know what the end times are and when they start? What kinds of things happen during these times? Is there any tangible proof of the end times that can establish the credibility of Bible prophecy to any skeptic? Where do we start with all of this? Well, first of all, I want to start by saying, David, thank you for once again being with us. It's a great pleasure to have you. It's always a pleasure to be on Christian Questions, uh, Rick, and going back over the many years that uh, you and Jonathan have been performing a wonderful service uh, in providing these uh, wonderful uh, programs that really stimulate the mind and the heart. Uh, it's always a privilege to have a small part in it. Well, we're glad to have you here, and you're kind of uh, uh, co-hosting with me today because Jonathan, like I said, at the very last minute was not able to be here. He's fine. His wife is fine, but they had an emergency they had to tend to and they didn't have any choice. So, David, let's get into this. What scriptures refer to the time of the end? Well, there's a several scriptures in the, in, the, in the Bible that tell us about this phrase, and I think it's important to note that this phrase, the time of the end, is a biblical phrase. Anyone who has studied the Bible can encounter this phrase and, and many phrases like it. So the Bible definitely teaches 
this concept that there is a time of the end. So now, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that the time of the end occurs in the book of Daniel. That's that's really where we see this particular phrase, and it occurs six times. And we're going to take a look at the timing particulars of how it's used in five of the six cases. So we're going to break it into just basic categories. The time of the end is spoken of as a specifically appointed time in Daniel 8.17. It says, Understand, O son of man, for the vision belongs to the time of the end. Daniel 8, verse, it, verse 19, two verses later. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the latter time of indignation, for it belongs to the appointed time of the end. And then Daniel eleven thirty five, even to the time of the end, because it is, it is yet for the time appointed. You know, these ideas here of, of time are very, very important to us, because our God is a God of time. And prophecy is always involved with time. But here in Daniel, the use of this expression, time to the end, shows that there is a chronology that God is operating under. And uh, there is an ending to this age of sin and death and the beginning of something more wonderful. And it is that demarcation point from what's wrong with the world to what's right with the world that we're talking about here. So the first point is it's specifically an appointed time. That's what Daniel said three different times. The next point, it's not to be understood until it's upon this world, until it's here. Daniel 12, 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Then a few verses later in Daniel 12, 9. Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed till the time of the end. This is very interesting, the way that the Heavenly Father, through his angels, has expressed this. Our God is a God of progressive revelation. Things become clear as time goes by. Now, the, the prophecies in Daniel have specifically to do with the time of the end, but Daniel is told that they will not be understood. That's what this idea of being sealed, sealed the book, shut up and seal the book, that the details of this are going to be reserved for those that live at the time of the end so that they might identify when they are living and what to expect. Okay, so you've got a specifically appointed time and then a lack of understanding until it's upon you. What else? Well, there's a similar expression used in the New Testament uh, we're talking about Daniel here so far, but Jesus himself had some things to say about this. Now, he doesn't use exactly the same uh, language or the same words, but close enough. He used the term end of the age. And by the way, in some of the older translations like uh, uh, King James and a few of those, they use the expression end of the world. Hmm. And, and those that mock Christians say, oh, you people are a bunch of chicken littles. You're talking about <laughs> the end of the world and whatnot. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus said. The word for age there is the Greek word aiano, which means age. It's talking about time. Remember, all these scriptures in Daniel talked about time. Well, that's what Jesus had in mind. There is another Greek word for world, which is cosmos, but that's not the world that the word that Jesus used here. And uh, Jesus gave us several more hints in the scripture uh, regarding this. Okay, so Christianity, here's the first, the first hint, if you will. Christianity will be corrupted, and that corruption will be revealed when? At the end of the age. Matthew 13, 39 to 40, and then verse 49. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. This is how it will be, this is verse 49 now, at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. It's just repeating it again and again, David. 
Yes, indeed. You see that Jesus is saying the same thing that Daniel was saying, that there would be an end of the age. Now, in the particular verse here that we read, he gives us a a little clue as to one of the features. We're going to talk a lot more about the features of the end of the time of the end. But Jesus here talks about the harvest and the harvesting of angels. And as you mentioned, uh, the, the Lord understood that Christianity would be corrupted. And here we are in this time, we can look back and see that very, very clearly. But that corruption would eventually be revealed at the end of the age. Okay. Next one, Jesus was specific enough about the end of the age that his apostles specifically asked for signs. So you know he taught it because his apostles specifically asked. In Matthew 24, verse 3, this is before his great prophecy of his return, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Isn't it interesting that even the apostles were interested in this subject? I mean, we're talking about time again. And there's no wonder. uh, Worshippers of God through all the ages have been looking forward to something better, to an ending of of sin and death and all of the uh, accompanying suffering that comes through it. That's what the angels had in or the uh, apostles had in mind here. When is this going to happen? When will be the end of this terrible age? So Jesus is, is continuing, just like Daniel. This is a theme. He reminded his disciples that his care for them would be present for every Christian. When? Until the end of the age. Matthew twenty eight twenty, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, this is very beautiful. It shows the tenderness of Jesus. He understood that there would be trouble throughout all of history. And we're going to distinguish that from the trouble at the end of the age here in just a moment. Uh, and he understood that those that were following him would be persecuted and, and killed and martyred and whatnot. But he wanted them to know, look, I am going to be with you during this intervening time. I'm going to be with the church until the end of the age of the church, until the very end. Now, there's more Bible texts like this. If you do a search on the phrase, the last days, uh, it will give you many more. All of these texts establish that the Bible teaches that there is a time of the end. And this leads to a couple more questions. Whenever you talk about the end, well, the end of what? (laughs) What are we talking about here? And how can we identify the time of the end? What are the qualifying features that would let us know that, yep, this is it? So that's really what we want to focus on. How do we know this is it? We keep saying, yes, this is the time of the end. Daniel is very specific. Jesus is very specific. To answer this, we're going to focus on the prophecy. And again, we're touching on things because this is such a deep subject. We're just going to look at Daniel chapter 12, just verses 1 to 4 to set our context. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. This is a very powerful set of of, of scriptures, uh, verses 1 through 4, and there's a lot of information there. Let's dissect just a few of the the things that Daniel wrote here. 
He said, there shall be a time of trouble. Well, naturally, in our minds, we will want to know, well, what, what does that represent? What is the time? And in the next segment, we're going to categorize the types of trouble that would characterize this. He says it's going to be the worst in history. Here's a threat level that, that mankind has not seen throughout all of history. There have been threats on a local, but this is, this is, the scope here is unprecedented. Yeah, threat level red there, huh? Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. right. Bring on the Claxton, you know, yeah, this is yeah. something that we need to draw attention to. Um, it's going to precede the blessings of the kingdom. I think that's so important. Again, the, the scoffers in the world, they say, oh, you're the end of the world people, but they don't understand that we're talking about the end of an evil system and the beginning of something that's going to have all of mankind to rejoice. Now, we already saw from previous uh, scriptures that it wouldn't be understood till the time of the end, and this is reiterated here. And this last sentence has a couple of clues that, you know, almost doesn't require faith when you see the fulfillment of these things. It says, many shall run to and fro. They're talking about travel. Has there ever been such a wide volume of travel in the world that, that has been existing here for the past hundred years? Uh, it, it is unprecedented in history. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, almost at, at all levels, can can travel from one place to another. And then the last part: knowledge shall be increased. You know, I forget what the uh, what the specification was, but I remember at one time knowledge was increasing; it was doubling every fifteen months or twelve months, and that number kept getting smaller and smaller. There's so many people researching so many subjects. And we have computers by which we can acquire this knowledge and keep it. And it just grows and grows and grows. What a remarkable indicator from the book of Daniel about the time we're living. So we have many, many aspects, but the thing that people always think about and always focus on is this time of trouble. And we want to understand that in, in better light. So, you know, this time of trouble, this is not a very happy scenario. We have an ominous ending of who knows what and a unique brand of trouble. So far, we have a very broad description of the time of trouble. Are we able to know the specific details? Bible prophecy can be tricky because it's so interpretive. We can look at specific verses from a specific perspective and come to a specific conclusion, which inevitably may be incorrect. The key to all of this is context. So far, our foundation states that the end times are unique in all of history, and this time would not be understood until it arrived. It would be a mystery until it was actually upon the world. So, so David, let's focus in on this time of trouble. And you mentioned it before. We want to define trouble because there's always been trouble. Why is this time of trouble so very different? You know, that's, that's a very logical question, very reasonable question. You look back at history, there's always been trouble. So how is this different? Well, the trouble in the end times can be distinguished from trouble throughout the age by really three things. The scope of it, the threat level, we talked about that in the last segment, and the continuity of the trouble. And what I mean by continuity is that one trouble follows another trouble follows another trouble. Uh, I, I like the scripture in Amos chapter 519. There's, there's almost a funny aspect to it. But uh, in this Amos fifth chapter, he's talking about the features of the time of trouble at the end of the age. And he says, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> And he went into the house and leaned his head on the wall, and a serpent bit him. You know, one thing after another, that's, that's the continuity of this trouble. So let's break down some of the categories here. International trouble. 
there's a there's a word we use always when we have international troubles called war. Mm-hmm. That is is a disrupted relationship between two nations that they go to battle. National trouble. That's trouble between one state within a nation and another state or one group of people. We call that revolution. Local trouble. When you got local trouble between neighbor, one man's neighbor against another, that's the definition of anarchy. So we've got international, national, and local. Besides that, there's political trouble, there's social trouble, there's religious trouble, and there's economic trouble. All of these details now encompass the scope of what we're talking about. It's, it's worldwide and every part of everyone's life. And the threat level, my goodness gracious, there are people that, uh, that are completely irreligious, don't know anything about the Bible, that are worried about the survival of mankind. How's that for a for a threat? That's that, about as that's, that's as high as you can get, isn't it? It it is. It is. And and so so far, folks, I'll speak for you because all David is doing is depressing all of us right now. <laughs> <laughs> International, national, local, political, social, religious, economic, nothing seems to be left out. So let let's break this down. Okay? Let's break this down. Has our age been a time of trouble that's unique, as, as you described previously? We need to break the world trouble into its several categories. So we're going to go through those categories, uh, many of which you've, you've just talked about, and, and just delve into them. Let's look, and each one, David, I want to give you a scripture to start with. So Matthew 24, verses 20 to 22, this is Jesus' prophecy of his own return. And he says, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That sounds just like Daniel. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is prophesying great trouble that happens in a unique period only that time. And let's start with the big picture, David. Let's start with war. Let's start with 1914. As it begins, it's the beginning of World War I, and clearly a significant trouble, a troubled time in human history. Well, this is interesting because in history books now, it's called World War I. What does that say? There was never a world war before. Isn't that unprecedented? Yes. It's the whole point. Now, somebody might say, well, well, David, you know, back at that time, they didn't call it war. They called it the Great War. Yes, they did. But when World War II began, it got called World War I. And here's an idea of the severity here. that The total number of deaths in World War I is estimated from 17 to 40 million. Now, that's quite a spread. Why is it so spread? Well, there were those that died as a result of war and sometimes being able to pick all of the, the reasons for death are not so sure. But nevertheless, 17 million, even as a low number, that's an incredible number. Now we go to something even worse. World War II, the total of de- number of deaths there is estimated to be from 80 to 120 million. That dwarfs World War One. It's almost, Rick, it's almost unfathomable. How can you imagine 80 or 120 million people died? Again, have we ever seen this before in history? No. We've been using the word unprecedented, and that is a feature of the end time, time of the end. Unprecedented events. And the death here, the 20th century saw the most deaths due to war in the history of mankind. 
So you've got that. You've got those things happening in, in, in 1914. Let, let's look at just the sovereignty of nations at this point now. So you've got this incredible, massive destruction of war, the, the, the killing of so many human beings. In 1914, what about sovereign nations compared to now? Well, that's interesting, too. In, uh, in 1914, they say that there were 62 sovereign nations, that is, independent nations with their own polity, uh, oftentimes own ethnicity. By uh, this year, 2021, there's 195 sovereign nations. Now, how does a new nation come? Well, it breaks off of an old nation. Is that done amicably? Usually not. Right. It, it implies revolution. It implies another uh, rebellion against the existing nation. I mean, the, the creation of our own nation back in 1776 represented the beginning uh, of a war with England. Well, that's how these other 195, up to 195 nations. This is the point. More war, more trouble, more tribulation. So it's on a massive scale. And you talked about scope and threatened level and continuity of trouble. When you see all of these nations developing, we may not hear about it uh, in, in our daily news, but the number of nations is more than triple what it was less uh, a little over 100 years ago. So when you look at this in war, has this ever happened in history, in the history of humanity to the same degree as it's happening today? Ever? It hasn't. It has. I mean, again, we mentioned earlier that this is not a matter of faith or a matter of interpreting obscure Bible prophecy. At this point, we're just looking at modern history and comparing it with ancient history and not so old history. We live in times that are different from the rest of the time of humankind on this earth. And and we're looking at it in larger blocks of time. In, in society today, we tend to look at this year and last year and the year before. Biblical perspective is in much larger blocks of time, and this is something we need to understand. So we talked about war. Let's talk about corporations and corporate power. What about corporate power now versus other times? I want to give you a scripture to start with. James 5, 1 to 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Boy, David, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know, with, with power comes responsibility. Right. And the rich through all of the ages have had a certain amount of power that comes with their wealth. And their wealth has influences as well. And so when they use that in a selfish way or an unkind way, God remembers. God's justice has been a very careful record keeper of what's going on. And here in James, uh, James is talking about the reckoning, the time that comes when the rich of the earth will be exposed for their, their lack of love and lack of concern. And their reaction, your gold and silver are rusted, they will consume your flesh like fire. Uh, remember in, uh, well, we weren't alive at the time, but in 1929, the stock market crashed. What was one of the things that was a, was a horrible result of that when people started losing their money? They started jumping out the window and committing suicide. Right. It, it, was, it, it, it was literally killing them to lose all of what they had. Well, you know, we want to bring this up to this idea of corporations today. Uh, as of 2002, and that's, uh, what, 19 years ago, of the 100 largest economies in the world, 51 are corporations and only 49 were countries. That's crazy. And this is based on a comparison between corporate revenue uh, and the country's uh, gross domestic product. So 
Uh, in this era of globalization, people are becoming especially angry at the motives and the, the uh, means that they operate, the methods that they operate of large multinational corporations. I mean, if you were to have a population, how many people like Jeff Bezos of Amazon or Jeff Zucker of Facebook or Bill Gates of Microsoft, there is a, really a rebellion against the power that these uh, folks have. And what's interesting is it's not just economic power, but it's political power. Right. Right. We're seeing corporations get involved in political power in, in an unprecedented degree. Uh, and they are causing certain political things to take place, political movements and influencing government officials. And they do all this as being unelected. By the way, Rick, did you know that corporations have human rights? Actually, I did know that, but that's not a commonly known thing. <laughs> and that is strange when you think about it. Corporations do have human rights. So, so when you look at these massive corporations, what, what's, what's the point here? Sum up the point of that before we move on to the next piece. Well, again, we're looking at it as a time of trouble and a feature of the time of the end. Again, we're starting to make a list of qualities that distinguish the time of the end from all others. Has there ever been an Amazon in times past or a Walmart or a, a pick your own big corporation? The answer is no. There's nothing ever been on that line. Now, yeah, back in the 1800s, we had you had the coal barons and the oil barons and whatnot, but even that was unprecedented in history. And of course, it has evolved in our own time uh, in ways that we could not possibly have imagined. But all of this is a certainly a, an indicator that of the quality of the time of the end that we would see. So we've never seen this kind of thing in human history, and it's on a massive scale. 51 out of the top 100 economies are corporations in terms of productivity. That is mind-boggling worldwide. Let's go to the economic picture. Again, a scripture to get you started, Ezekiel 7, 19. They will fling their silver into the streets, and their gold will become an abhorrent thing, and their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. And again, Dave, you look at that, and that doesn't feel very uh, encouraging or happy. No, no, this is, again, it's trouble. It's not good. It's, it's bad. And the trouble has a reason, as we'll talk about a little bit further. But from an economic standpoint, uh, let's take, for example, the Great Depression from 1929 to 1941. Uh, it wasn't merely a depression in this country. It was a worldwide depression. Right. And that was partially because the United States was one of the leaders uh, in international uh, consuming, international economics, international trade and whatnot. And when one goes down, it affected everyone else. And largely because of the advent of World War II kind of brought, brought us out of that. The efforts that were being made were not having a great deal of productivity and producing other problems on their own. Uh, let's take another feature of, um, of our time as well uh, called inflation. Now, we've lived through times when inflation has been pretty bad. I remember like a 15% inflation back in the, in the 1970s. Yeah. It hasn't been that bad lately. But what does inflation do? It steals money from the people. When, you're, when your dollar inflates and it won't buy the same amount as a dollar a year ago, that's a loss on your part. Right. The money in the bank, uh, when you have big inflation, that means that the value of what you're saving, even though you're not spending it, uh, goes down. Right. And so this is trouble for the people. 
the idea of a gold standard uh, was something that was real important to economies in the past. Everything was based upon the intrinsic value of gold and silver. Well, countries have gotten away from that, and now they use a floating standard of what they call fiat money. It's what's the value in relation to what you can buy and trade from other countries and interbusiness. And so that's that again is another dependency that we we haven't seen in the past. Let me just say a couple of things here in the scripture in Ezekiel that you just read. Rick, uh, regarding the loss of value, they're throwing their, their gold and silver in the streets, it's not helping them. Uh, money can lose its value in two ways. Uh, its value goes away, either through inflation or through other means, uh, that it, it doesn't have the buying power that you've had in the past. But there's another way that this come true, which is even more ominous, especially in, when we're considering this from the standpoint of trouble, that your money is worthless when there's nothing to buy. I can have $100 in my hand, but if I can't find a loaf of bread, I might as well just get rid of the $100. Yeah, and you can't eat the $100, right. (laughs) Exactly right. right. So, again, something that's never happened in human history. We're seeing these things all come together. Is it coincidence? No. No, this is a a converging of all of these elements uh, as as we move forward in God's plan. And, David, we've got two more sections that we want to handle in this in this segment next is social general embracing of immoral behavior and we could spend hours on this i want to spend just moments <laughs> second timothy 3 1 to 3 but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come men will be lovers of self lovers of money boastful arrogant revilers disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy unloving irreconcilable malicious gossips without self-control brutal and haters of good not a good scenario, a little bit on the social scene. Yeah, I mean, isn't this a description of our time? It doesn't, doesn't seem like the population has the love and affection for one another as members of the human race or even as members of the same uh, kingdom or the same uh, country uh, anymore. Uh, related to this is divorce rates. We see the institution of marriage going down terribly. Murder rates, crimes of other kinds, just the general behavior of uh, one another. So, and remember that... Paul is writing this. He's saying, in the last days. Right. This is a description of the social thing, uh, social events of our time. And again, it hasn't happened in this way ever, ever before. So you put all these things together and you say, wow, there is trouble on in every area that we've never experienced before. Finally, we want to touch on the religious aspect of things. We're going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're going to go to verses 4 through 7. And Paul continues this difficult list, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. That's the state of religion today. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting that Paul brings this in at the tail end of all of these uh, these awful features of mankind, that just the corrupting of the character of mankind, and it is connected with the loss of relationship with God. In our time, we've seen church attendance go down. There is an unprecedented, and I'm going to say unprecedented for the United States, an unprecedented ignorance of the Bible. I mean, you go back uh, even 50 years, you would find that most people had some knowledge of the Bible. Today, yes you're going to be hard-pressed to find people that have any depth of knowledge at all. 
And uh, another feature of the last days is the light that's shining on all subject is revealing wrongdoing. And we see wrongdoing within the organized churches. We see hypocrisy of churches. We see churches coming about uh, as a, uh, or becoming a businesses uh, in, in uh, trying to make money rather than to help people. And, you know, the interesting thing is in, in, the, in the middle period of time in the 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800s, you know, you had these large, large churches that were very dominant. Now you have all kinds of small churches that still are business-oriented. And so it's spread because it's more than just those few. Has this ever happened in the history of humanity? It's pretty unique, isn't it? It is. It is. And this is why we look at this and we say the time of the end is serious and needs for us to be seriously considering and alert to what's going on. So the time in the end brings the time of trouble, and it's broad-based, worldwide, and absolutely unique. So far, we've hoped to focused on prophecy and trouble. What are some other signs to identify our day as the end times? As we have, in the light of prophecy, described the various kinds of trouble that plague our time, we certainly seem to be in the time of the end. That's what we've been saying. However, this conclusion can still be subjective. What about a specific sign of the times that rises above that subjection? What about a sign that doesn't need faith for understanding? What about a sign that simply needs an open mind to be able to view the facts? And folks, we absolutely have such a sign. What about Israel as a nation? David, let's look at the regathering of the nation of Israel. Well, this is very interesting history. Uh, we're going to look at a scripture here that documents the time when Israel was cast off. And they've been dispersed. You remember that in the first century, the Romans came, destroyed the city, dispersed the people. They got taken out of the land of their, of their heritage, dispersed throughout. Now, nowhere in history has an ethnic people that was conquered that way and dispersed uh, ever came back into being. They get absorbed. Their culture goes away. They become part of the people that they're living in. Not so with the nation of Israel and with the Jews. It is a miracle, and it's a matter of history. No ethnic group, as we were saying, has ever experienced this return to their land or kept their ethnic identity as Israel, the Jews, have. And so as we look at this, we're going to take this apart a little bit. What we want you to do, folks, is think about this in terms of historical fact, and then listen to the Bible projections and see how the historical fact is obvious in light of those biblical projections. It was Jesus himself who declared that Israel would become a desolate place. In Matthew 23, 37 to 39, he's just really gotten after the Pharisees, and here's what he says as he wraps that up. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As you mentioned, Rick, Jesus had been talking to the scribes and Pharisees who were the religious leaders. But then he switches to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he says, Your house is left to you desolate. This is the, uh, the national house. They're being within the nation, within the promised land, 
nationally now they were being rejected by God. They had been unfaithful of their covenant, and so they were going to be cast away, as we have already mentioned. Now, the Bible is full of prophecies that show the conclusion of this desolate state. In fact, even Jesus here says to you, I say unto you, that you will not see me until. Right. Word until there says that there will be a conclusion of this desolated state. So Jesus gives a hint, but now let's go into some very plain scriptural language. God shows us that once the consequences of his anger are fulfilled, he will restore them to peace. We're going to start with Jeremiah 32, 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in my great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now, Rick, when we remember that Jeremiah wrote this centuries before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, it shows that God understood there would come the time that his judgment would spread them out, would send them to all the countries. And acknowledging that that's happening, now he says, I am going, there's going to be a time when I'm going to bring them back from all the countries that I have driven them in my anger and would bring them back to dwell safely. So not only did he know of the judgment and the result, but that that desolation would end. So bring them back to dwell safely. That's an important place to start. Restore them in peace. Next scripture, we're going to fold how the facts are playing out. God described, God is described, I'm sorry, as reaching for and beckoning Israel to come home. I will, in, in, in Ezekiel 20, 34, it says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. An outstretched arm, David. I love the picture of that because it's, it's like, come back, come back. <laughs> Indeed, you know, with a mighty hand. Uh, notice now this is in Ezekiel. You know, many of these prophecies are not just in one place or even in one place within a, within a book of prophecy. But we looked at, at, at Jeremiah. Now we're looking at Ezekiel and we see this similar theme. God repeats this multiple times. We'll look at a few more times yet, but he wants them to know, I am going to do this. And it's going to be impressive yeah. with a mighty hand. And when we consider how the Jews have been for centuries hated by the people and persecuted by the different nations and whatnot, now he brings them back to the land. And when we when we look at some of the events in Israel here recently, uh, when I say, I say recently, in the past uh, 70 years, 80 years that they've been a nation, we see God's mighty hand with, yeah. with many people still against him, with Arab nations bringing their armies in. Still, they continue to survive from a war in the 50s, 1967, 1973. And uh, 1973 is particularly uh, interesting because they were really behind the eight ball. It was a surprise attack. They weren't prepared. They were all celebrating. Uh, I think it was Rosh Hashanah at the time. And they had to get uh, out quickly in order to save themselves. And yet God was there. This is what's meant by God's mighty hand. And so what we're seeing is God's plan unfolding step by step. It's not all at once. That's the thing you have to realize. That's why God, God works in large periods of time. When we look at a year, we think, wow, that's a long time. No, to God, 70 or 80 years, now I can get started. And we have to see it that way. He restores them with peace. He beckons them. God is next. God is specific as to the breadth 
of Israel's recovery to their land. Let's go to another Isaiah scripture now. This is, we were in Jeremiah, we're in Ezekiel, now Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. David, this is dramatic. It is very dramatic, and there's a key phrase in here that's very important from a standpoint of interpretation. A second time. You know, many of those that uh, may have a different opinion uh, as to the application of this will say, well, yeah, God spread them out after after Babylon came and right. scattered them and whatnot, and then brought them back. That's all that that means. But no, this says a second time. Right. So it's very specific to a reference to the national scattering that occurred uh, as a result of the Romans in the first century and into the second century. The second thing here is he will raise a banner for the nation. Rick, we've been using this as an example, as a sign, as a signal that we are living in the last days. That's what he's saying here. All the nations should see that Israel is a banner. It's a sign to them that God is doing what he promised he would do. And he draws them from the four quarters of the earth. And many people don't like that banner. Let's be clear, but it's still there. Very miraculous, as we're going to see actually in the next segment. So now let's go to, we've got this developing. And folks, this is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that points to cold, hard facts that are before us now. Next point, God is fatherly and directs in his regathering of his people from every direction of the map. It mentioned the four quarters of the earth. Let's, let's expand that. Isaiah 43, verses 5 to 6, and then part of verse 21. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And then the end of verse 21, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. David, there's a beauty in the thorough approach that God is giving through this prophecy. And again, Rick, we can make historical connections with all this. You know, after World War II, uh, there were many, many Jews in Russia, or at least at that time it was the Soviet Union, and Stalin was in charge. And uh, they're just coming off now the terrible persecution of the Holocaust in Germany. And uh, Stalin, according to the story that uh, I heard from uh, a uh, one of our elders, Ken Rawson, some years ago, this would be in the early 50s, he was about ready to sign an order uh, commencing now a persecution of the Jews, and he had a stroke. Hmm. And I, my personal opinion is that God stopped that because it was time for the North to give them up. And there was a series of, of uh, emigrations from Russia to Israel that took place. Emigrations would go on, and then it would stop. But then another circumstance would happen, and then they would come. And I think most of the Jews that lived there have now emigrated. There's still some there. I don't know the numbers, but the North gave them up. From the South, do not hold them back. Uh, all of us are familiar with the uh, movement of the Ethiopian Jews, the so-called Ethiopian black Jews, that were taken, what Scripture says, on wings of eagles. The 
Israel sent in planes to bring these and to bring them into Israel. So there's from the south. We have historical events that we can connect up with this regathering specific to the north and specific to the south. So this, there's a magnificence to this, and prophetically it's repeated again and again. And now, folks, you're, you might be thinking, okay, what about the time of the end? What's the direct connection? Stay with us because we're going to tie that knot in just a few more minutes here. What we're doing is laying out the fact that Israel is regathered, and you can see it in front of your face. They're on the map, and the scriptures in many places, in many times, showed us that. God's plan of Israel's restoration will be unmistakably recognized by those he redeemed. We know that from Psalms 107, uh, uh, chapter uh, 107, verses 2 and 3. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the land of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Again, David, this, this expansiveness of this regathering. Yeah, it's interesting it characterized them as redeemed. No, you think about redeemed as, uh, you know, you redeem a coupon or something. There's a, there's almost a transaction there. And, of course, we know that the transaction uh, is in Jesus and the Messiah. But they will recognize that. They will say we're redeemed. When, when it uses that word, that ties in with the removal of blindness from Israel, that they will be able to see the hand of God in connection with the Messiah, one that they haven't recognized as Messiah, but will uh, in these last days. Well, you know, Rick, Israel unquestionably is a major key of our understanding in end times. There's no getting around it. It's historically based. It is, and we need to understand it, and you can look at it. It's factual. It's right there. So the, the casting off and regathering of Israel are big biblical news. To understand Israel is to understand the end times. Israel's restoration is a biblical fact. How can we better understand the implications of this process? Well, just like most things in biblical prophecy, Israel's restoration was foretold and documented in Scripture. We, here at the end of the age, we have a bird's eye view of the historical facts that verify these prophecies. We are also positioned to see current events unfold in light of these fulfilled prophecies. So David, we are sitting in the best seat possible. Sure, time of trouble, all this stuff going on, but when you can watch prophecy unfolding before your very eyes, it is an inspiration when all of this trouble is around us. So now we need to dig further. Further verifying these prophecies and symbols help us pay close attention to current world events. Now it's interesting that so far we've looked at prophecies but now we're going to look at a symbol. Jesus used a symbol of a fig tree to depict Israel. And in so doing, he repeated the lessons of many of the prophecies that we've seen so far. All right. So the symbol of the fig tree to depict Israel. Let's look at Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and it did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. David, just a quick, a quick viewpoint of what, what does that mean? 
But we're suggesting here that when Jesus used the term fig tree, that he's talking about the nation of Israel. And we'll see some scriptures that make that connections. But uh, understanding that, or at least starting from that starting point, Jesus himself connects the return of Israel to the land of promises with the time of the end. And I think it's important to note that so many of the promises that God has made with Israel are connected to the land. You can't separate them out. Remember, the, the desolation was taking them out of the land. Terrible punishment. And so the restoration of them to the land is part and parcel of God's redeeming them. So Israel, when you think of Israel, we need to think of the people. We need to think of the, the, the religious thinking and, and moral system set up by the law. And we need to think of the land. So with those in mind, Luke and Matthew each deliver important details of this prophecy of Jesus regarding the end times. And again, this is from Jesus' prophecy of his own return. This is how Israel is directly tied in to Jesus' return and to the end times. We're going to read from Luke and Matthew consecutively, and David will, will have you put those together. First, Luke 21, 29 to 31. This is Jesus' prophecy. And he spake to them a parable, and the parable was, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, Know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Now, when we go to Matthew 24, it's the same parable, but just slightly different details. Matthew 24, 32 to 34. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So David, this prophecy of Jesus' return, he drops this parable of the fig tree in. What is Jesus telling us? Well, it's important to remember the context in which Jesus says these things. Now, we quoted Luke and Matthew. We could also go to Mark chapter 13, which has similar language. But remember, earlier in the program, we looked at the beginning of Matthew 24. Right. And the disciples were asking the question about time. When will these things be? What will be the sign of thy presence? And what will be the, the end time of the end? So this is in that context. We can't get away from it. So this parable of the fig tree here has to be seen or interpreted from the standpoint of, of things that would happen at the end of the age. Now, there's a couple of, uh, uh, of differences between how Luke recorded it and how Matthew recorded it. Let's go to Matthew first, the parable of the fig tree. He says that when you see it putting forth leaves, you know summer is, is nigh. Now remember, this is a parable, so the things indicated are, the, are not to be taken literally, but they, they mean different things. We're talking about the nation of Israel. When it puts forth leaves, well, what might that mean parabolically? Well, I think the answer is, is pretty clear when we put it in the intense context. The putting forth of leaves is the reestablishment of them nationally, the reestablishment and restoration of them in their homeland, just prior to the reestablishment of their relationship with God once they see and understand who Jesus is, have their blindness removed. And that's the summer. That is the time of the end when all of these things wrap up. Now, Luke gives us another little interesting thing. He says, behold the fig tree and all the trees. Well, we already said the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. So what would all the trees represent? 
well, they must represent other nations as well. Right. Remember, we talked about earlier the difference in the number of nations from 1914 to today, from what was it, 62? 62 to, to 195, I remember. 195. There's a lot of trees out there showing their leaves, <laughs> yes, isn't it? Yes, That's exactly yeah. what, we're, what we're talking about here. It was a sign of national, uh, national existence and, and national creation. Right. So you've got growth. You've got growth happening. And from growth comes fruitage. And, and so there's a process. Again, God works in processes, not in moments, not in the snap of a finger, but in the development of thing over, something over time. So, so David, this is important because we're talking about this fig tree and we're saying it's Israel, it's Israel, it's Israel. How can we be certain that the fig tree and figs actually do unequivocally, unquestionably represent Israel? Well, I think it's important for us to have a thus saith the Lord for right. it. Uh, our our uh, subjective interpretation here seems to be right. It matches what we see. But if we have a thus saith the Lord, it's even better. And we do. Uh, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, this is from the NIV, we read, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the firstborn, or the uh, first ripe, excuse me, in the fig tree of its first season. Well, there we have a plain connection of Israel with not only fig tree, but grapes here. But we're focusing on the symbol of the fig tree. They are like the fig tree, and Hosea tells us that. All right, so we've got Israel as a fig tree. Hosea says it pretty plainly. Now let's look at figs as seen in a vision of Jeremiah. And we're going to break this into a couple of pieces here. Jeremiah 24 uh, verses 1 to 2, 4 to 8, and verse 10, and this is from the New International Version. After Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials and the skilled workers and the artisans of Judah were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, so you've got the context, the Lord shows me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Yeah, this is interesting. You've got the good and the bad figs. Now, we've already seen from Hosea that the fig tree and its figs represent uh, the nation of Israel. So now in this particular uh, verses or these verses, we have good and bad figs. So what's the meaning of the good figs? So let's continue with the reading in Jeremiah. Uh, this is Jeremiah 24, verses 4 through 7. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me. I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. That's a pretty straightforward answer, isn't it? Oh, it's a very positive one as well. Again, how clearly it says that the good people within Israel are represented by the good figs. Again, putting this in context, remember that Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem and he took, he destroyed the city and he took the people away. Uh, the people that he took away uh, are part of the good figs here. And it says that I will watch over them for their good. So the time that they're away from the land in exile, that God, God would be like a father watching over them and bring them back. So that's the good fix. Now, what about the bad fix? 
Back to Jeremiah 24, uh, verses uh, 8 and 10. But like the bad figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so will I deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the survivors from Jerusalem, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt. And verse 10, I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land, and I will give them all their ancestors. Well, pretty clear here, when we look at what Zedekiah did, he disobeyed God. God told him to continue to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, but he rebelled. And he wasn't a good, he put Jeremiah in chains and, and put him in a pit. Uh, he, this was not a, a very good worshiper of God, very bad. So the, the idea of bad things fit him perfectly. Now, when we think about all of this work that God is doing to establish Israel in the time of the end, why? Why is he doing it? And it's because that all of this is tied to God's plan of his chosen people. Again, remember that God is a God of his word. He made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he said that he would bless their seed. And he remembers that. So this is not a question of how good or how bad Israel was or the Jews are. That's kind of irrelevant from God's standpoint. He made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that promise means that he would restore them. So Israel's existence as a nation, we know is a matter of history. This history fulfilled prophecy. And folks, when we look at the end times, are we living in the end times? The answer is absolutely yes. Why do we know? Because we have signs literally, literally in front of our face. And, you know, we've talked about many, many signs so far. Another scripture, David, I know you love this scripture, so I'm just going to read it and let you take away, take it away. <laughs> Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Hosea 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall make answer there as in the days of her youth, and as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So her, in this scripture, is Israel, obviously. What do we draw from this that is so powerful in terms of prophecy and history? This is one of the most convincing uh, scriptures that we know of because of its connection with what actual, actual history uh, of the Jews. Let's take us back to the, uh, the middle of the, uh, of the uh, 19th century. You have Jews still spread throughout the land, by virtue of the uh, Turkish rulers of the Ottoman Empire, Jews were not allowed to be in the land. They were not allowed to own the land. I should take that back. There were some Jews that lived in Jerusalem, but they were specifically uh, prohibited from owning land. They were mercantile people, did some business there. and whatnot. It was against the law to own even an acre of land. Well, that changed in, in uh, 1878. Because of the influence of the British government upon the Turkish Ottoman Empire, they began to open it up for Jews to come into the land. Now, at the same time, there were those that were waking up to their heritage, what we call Zionists back at this time. And the Zionists were preaching to other Jews, we need to go back to the land that God gave us. This is our destiny. This is what we have to do. So there were all these voices now that were alluring people to think about going back to the land. And remember, that's a hard thing to do. The German Jews were comfortable in Germany. The Russian Jews were comfortable in, in uh, Russia, so forth and so on. They had businesses. They had families there. They were still separate, to be sure. But uh, this would mean taking up their roots. 
So when the scripture use allure her, that's the voice of the Zionists saying, this is what God wants you to do. There is a destiny here for you that's good. And it says, and bring her into the wilderness. Well, let's think for a moment of what Israel was like in 1878. It wasn't like today. There weren't beautiful groves and farmland all waiting to be uh, uh, used and, and bring forth fruitage. No, it was a wilderness. There were swamps. Uh, there was land that was not worth uh, anything. We could hardly live upon it. And this is the land that the Jews began to buy. It was a land that many of the, the, the Turks and whatnot would gladly say, I'll sell you this malaria-ridden swamp. Here, <laughs> here you go. Take it. Sure. And so they, they did that. Well, what's really, oh, this is goosebumply when you think about it. The first uh, settlement, and we use the term kibbutz. I don't know if they used it back then, but it's the same idea. The very first settlement in Israel was made in 1878, and the name of that settlement was Petatikva. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Notice there it says, I will give her the Valley of Achor. Right. Achor means trouble. We're talking about trouble here. Mm -hmm. So she's going to have a lot of trouble, but trouble has a door of hope. Rick, the Hebrew for door of hope is Petatikva. So the very opening of the of the land corresponds with what we actually see in history. It says, and she shall make answer there as in the days of the youth and in the days she came up. And of course, standing here in 2021, we have seen that long development from 1878 to 70 years up to 1948 when they became a nation of themselves. And now it is an unprecedented nation. It is a nation that is exporting food uh, to uh, Europe and to elsewhere. It is a nation that leads the world in technology. All of these things are indication of God's blessing just before some more trouble, but before that blindness will be removed and they will be restored to their covenant relationship with their God. So you have this door of hope, Petatikva. Literally, Petatikva is the door through which Israel was able to be resettled, re-inhabited by by the Jewish people. It's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. So, David, we're we're, we're shy on time. So let's take let's wrap this up. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. We're going back to the beginning of the promise of Israel and looking now at the ending of where we are now. In Genesis 22, this is the promise to Abraham. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, in this scripture, it talks about Israel blessing others. It talks about the stars of heaven, spiritual Israel. We know, we know that to be the fulfillment of Christianity, true Christianity, and the sands of the seashore, physical Israel. So it talks about both of those blessing the nations of the earth. So in just a couple minutes here, is Israel already blessing other nations in this time of the end? Well, there's no question that it is. And uh, many Jews recognize this as, as one of the privileges that they have. Remember the old adage, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. 
God loves the whole world of mankind. John 3.16, God is only begotten son for a whole, because he loved the world. Now, he's got a responsibility to the Jews because of that covenant relationship with Abraham, but he doesn't ignore the rest of the world. And in this saying that all families of the earth would be blessed by the offspring or the seed of Abraham suggests that they have a very important role in God's blessing for the rest of the world. And Rick, you're right. It has already started. Now, the big fulfillment won't be until the kingdom is totally set up. Right. But we see this, the, the, the roots of this wonderful promise already at work. There is a, an expression that some Jews use. It's called tekon olam. And what it means is to fix the world or to repair the world. And they recognize that as God's people, which they believe that they are, and they are according to the flesh, as God's people, they have a responsibility to shepherd and to help the rest of the world. This idea of tekun olam means that they are doing things that would be a blessing to the world. And what have we seen already coming out of Israel? We mentioned technology. Um, drip irrigation technology is a very big one. It enables them to export this technology to places like Africa and uh, South America and other places that are turning uh, areas that did not produce much in the way of food, now it produces very much, the same type of thing that they got. The cell phone comes from patents that were made in Israel, <laughs> medical diagnostics, humanitarian work, uh, taking care of those that have problems in the world. When Haiti had the earthquake, who was the first nation that went there, that sent a plane to help them out? It was the nation of Israel. All of this represents that feeling on the part of some Israelis to want to be a blessing to the world. So, yes, there is blessing that has begun, but there's much, much more to come. The time of the end is a time that has trouble, but it's not just trouble. We can look around us and see God's blessing as we look through the trouble. So, folks, wrapping this up, there is a lot to think about here in terms of putting it all together, and the time of the end can be scary. But what we wanted to do today was give you not just uh, something to look at and say, oh, I'm afraid, but something to look at and say, this is prophecy. This is being fulfilled. This is right in front of my face. I can take hope in this because if you follow other prophecies, you see, like David, you said earlier, God's kingdom follows all of this. David, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Folks, it's important for us to realize how the scriptures can show us what is happening and what is going to happen. Do not lose heart in the world in which we live because there is more coming. The time of the end is just before a time of beginning. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Jesus taught us to pray that for a reason. Think about it. Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, Rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, how can we overcome crushing guilt? How can we overcome crushing guilt? guilt. We'll talk to you then.